Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Thursday, guys. It's time to philosophize, time you've all been waiting for during the week. Um, but I've been feeling a little bit under the weather for the past few days. You probably can um, tell by my voice. I have the pen plague. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but I, I wanted to give you guys um, a podcast, so here's like a short one. I hope it'll be short. I always say that and then I just go way over. But I just want to talk about a few things that I'm workshopping for an eventual essay for my social contract class. Um, So yeah, there's this thing called the social contract. And all I'm going to be talking about today is inspired by my social contract class talked by uh, Dr. Daniel Wodak. He's a really interesting professor and super knowledgeable about moral philosophy. So yeah, um, that's just my background in this. So back to it. The social contract, what is it? Well, it's an idea that we all adhere to a set of unspoken rules from some unspoken contract that, so that we can live sociably and go about our lives in a civil manner. And you, you might be thinking, well, I don't really like this idea of some constraint on my actions. Um, or maybe you're wondering, well, I never overtly agreed to this contract. Why would I want to? How do we hold up this invisible standard if there wasn't actually any overt consent from civilians in the first place? Luckily for you, I had a few classes on this, so I'm here to answer these questions the best I can. It all starts with the man, the myth, the legend, Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes is one of the founders of social contract theory. Hobbes's um, Leviathan provides an explanation for the state of nature agreement and all that really goes into the foundation of the social contract. We might ask Hobbes, why do we have the social contract? And to answer this question, we kind of have to go all the way back to life before the contract. So what was life like? According to Hobbes, it was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Funny story about that is that um, my grad TA asked my recitation if life at Penn was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Awkward silence. Um, (laughs) I know everyone in the class was tempted to say yes, but we just couldn't say that to someone who's grading our papers, right? (laughs) All jokes, but back to the state of nature. It's miserable, and it's the war of all against all because of three specific reasons. The first is that we, as people, predominantly pursue what is in our self-interest. We are predominantly egoist. That's not to say that you don't care about your mother or that you don't care about seeing other people succeed, but you primarily, like, when it goes down to this, like, most basic thing, you were thinking about your survival, you know? The second reason is that there is scarcity in our world. There are things in society that we indeed need to pursue our proper ends. Oftentimes, we share those needs with others, like food, but we struggle to get all of our needs met because there's only a finite supply of goods that are available for use. Um, so there's competition in that regard. <coughs> the final reason is that um, is one that like probably needs the most explanation for us to accept it as a true premise um, to the state of nature. It's called the rough equality of natural endowments. What the heck does that mean? Um, it, it generally means that the weakest human is still a threat to the strongest human. I know it's kind of like a hard thing to accept at face value, but it's pretty non-conversion, uh, like non controversial there you go in pro like a proposition um essentially like 
the weakest person is still a threat to the strongest person. It doesn't have to be an overbearing or like super prominent threat. It just has to be a threat of some type, including a tiny threat. You know, like we're all roughly equal to each other. Um, like we, you know, pose a threat to each other. That's that's literally it. Those three things make the state of nature um, the war of all against all. No rational human wants to live in a life that is like solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I don't know if I got all of those, but yeah. And that miserable life is inevitable without the occurrence of cooperation. Um, the benefit of cooperation as it stands with the conditions of the state of nature is the foundation for forming the social contract. We're all rational beings. We make decisions based on what will benefit us. Rationality is about maximizing utility in some way. But we can agree that the state of nature is not a place a rational person would want to live. <laughs> so rational beings came up with cooperations. So why should we cooperate? Um, if, if a rational person decides um, to maximize their utility, then why wouldn't they just go free-for-all and take everyone's property and everything in the state of nature? You know, like, it's like the purge. Like, a rational person would just go out, kill, get money, get food, whatever, just because that's the way it is. That's what a rational person would do, maximizing their utility. That seems pretty utility-maximizing to me. Um, but the thing is that even in the state of nature, there are other rational people who are also thinking the same thing. One could say that a rational person has four choices in the state of nature, um, ranked best case to worst case scenario. Best case scenario in the state of nature is like a successful like purge person. Um, the, the best case scenario is that the, like, I kill other people, get their property, food, money, etc., the second best case for um, everyone is peace between everyone because both sides concede. Maybe you don't get all of the benefits that you would by killing people and taking their property and everything, um, but, you know, it's peace. Third case scenario is the war of all against all. That's when both people attack, I guess, and, you know, it's just a free-for-all. I guess that's, like, the middle ground um, like of, you know, both attacking Obviously, it'll end up in either best or worst case scenario, but worst case scenario is that the person gets killed, or like you get killed by other people who then took your property, food, and weapons. So that's pleasant. Um, <laughs> kind of bleak. Um, but multiple people live in society and they're all rational. That being said, they all face the same problem. They all have these four options. This is called a prisoner's dilemma. Um, when rational people have this dilemma and have these ranked case scenarios and they know that other people who are acting in their own self-interest are in this game, they're going to pick the option that is of greatest utility to them. Rationally, no matter what you do, the other people will always betray you. <laughs> they will always choose to attack. Um, but it's a far worse outcome to cooperate when the other person defects. So no matter what, a rational actor would choose to attack and defect from a corporation, um, hence playing out the third best case, the war of all against all. The war is an equilibrium outcome that's worse for everyone than peace. It's the um, number three option in the ranked tier. Um, utility would be better maximized if every rational player agreed to trust each other and play out option number two, peace. It's an assurance game. Um, it's something rational that we all can comply to. 
The point of the contract is to provide peace that renders each person better off. There's a deliberative rationality of everyone that allows them to see that they truly are benefiting from peace. Hobbes further justifies it by saying that it is indeed rational to play by the rules until it rationally doesn't make sense to be compliant anymore. <laughs> I, and I should also mention that, yeah, we, we don't overtly consent to the social contract. It's not, yeah, it's not overt consent. It's not like tacit consent either. Um, rather, it's hypothetical consent. It's actually like a pretty interesting point here because it said that like if you are a rational actor then you would have hypothetically agreed to this provision aka the social contract because otherwise you'd be in a war of all against all and that wouldn't be very rational when there could be a you know a different outcome agreed upon um the social contract gives you the opportunity to raise your outcome from choice three to choice two and further benefit from the act of cooperation um so now that i've explained the social contract i like to dive a little bit deeper into these arguments that we can make once we can assume the social contract um in forming agreements there has to be at least some sense of morality if not then it's not a very good agreement um morality is connected to rationality well People do argue about that, but I truly think so. Um, I read some Gauthier for class this week. He's a neo-Hobbesian, a philosopher, just for context. He um, attempts to answer a problem about like morals and agreements. Um, to start off like this extension topic, we're going to like talk about a little example from Plato's Republic. It's a great classic story, The Ring of Gyges. This was, this was mentioned in the social contract, but it's just it's just about you know justice and morality um but there's this ring that renders the user the power of invisibility this is crazy because as long as you're wearing the ring you can do whatever the heck you want and not suffer the consequences the moral question here is would you be moral even when there's no cost to you because let's say you have the ring of gaijis on and you're super hungry you have the opportunity to take food without consequence and meet one of your self-interested ends but would that be moral no most people would say no um would it be rational Mm, there is the ground that we can discuss so yeah, when there's this question of should we be moral even when it may not be rational, um, well, Gauthier contradicts that and argues that morality involves constraints. Um, this is most easily explained that by stating that um, immoral things don't suddenly become moral because you want to do them really badly. Um, Gauthier also holds that rationality involves maximizing utility. That's an easy one because we talked about it earlier. If these are true, both that um, morality involves constraints and that rationality involves maximizing utility, then morality and rationality must conflict, right? Since one is maximizing and one constrains, then there has to be some sort of tension, The problem Gauthier sees with this is that rationality is a given and it's self-interested. If morality seems to be maybe kind of a skilled choice, then um, since rationality is constrained by morality, we should reject morality and just pursue our ends freely. But 
society that would reject morality is not really a society I want to live in and not a society most people want to live in. We generally want to trust each other and feel like confident in our moral agreements. Um, luckily, Gauthier provides a, a solution to the problem and apparently there are rational constraints. Um, Gauthier identifies rational constraint by introducing two types of rational maximizers. They are straightforward and constrained maximizers. These maximizers disagree about what we calculate the utility of when making a rational decision. Um, so this kind of like goes into the social contract here. Straightforward maximizers believe that to be rational is to calculate the utility of acting in a certain way. They look at the utility maximizing principle of each and every singular decision that they make. Will it maximize utility? Well, do the act if it does. Constrained maximizers are very different. It's not about the action for them. It's about being disposed to act in a certain way. Um, constrained maximizers look at the utility of the disposition to act because that is what they believe will maximize utility. Uh, Dr. Wodak actually used a very interesting example today in class. He said that suppose that there's this really rich guy that pays people to do like stupid things. Um, he also has a new age detector machine that is effective in telling him if people intend to do something. This guy goes up to you and says, hey, if you intend to drink this poison tomorrow, I'll give you $1 million today, right now. Now, keep in mind that this poison won't actually kill you. It'll just make you very sick for a few days. Um, but, like, the main point is poison tomorrow or intent to drink poison tomorrow, $1 million today. How many of you would intend to drink the poison? I don't know. I could use a million dollars, so sure I would. Then the follow-up question is how many of you would actually drink the poison once you got the money? That's a little strange there. But the thing is, you can't be disposed to doing an act that you have no intention of doing. A constrained maximizer would drink the poison. A straightforward maximizer would just take the money and not drink the poison. But it's all about the disposition to do something. Would that guy deal with you after you did or didn't drink the poison? Mm, then that's something that maximizers would take into account. Constrained maximizers go on to live lives that are better off than straightforward maximizers. They are afforded opportunities that would otherwise not be given to them. For constrained maximizers, self-interest is maximized because of the way they are disposed to acting and the way in which outsiders see their disposition and choose to cooperate with them. Here's another example, courtesy of Dr. Wodak. Think about your closest friends. They all genuinely have the means to betray you. <laughs> not to be cynical or anything, but the thing is, they don't betray you. If they were straightforward maximizers, they would betray you and, like, date your ex-boyfriend or befriend people with better social ties or do something along those lines. I'm assuming that all of our closest friends have not betrayed us because they're our closest friends. Why would we have betrayers as friends? So we would consider them constrained maximizers. If they have betrayed you, then... Honey, please, stop associating with people who are mistaken about what rationality is. You can do better. <laughs> um, okay, this, this goes back to the social contract because of the fool's challenge. I'm sure that if you've taken an econ class or two, you've heard of it. The fool says that, hey, if everyone complies to this social contract, then sometimes it's rational to defect. These will maximize me my utility. These are like tax loophole people, you know, our tax avoiders, like, 
hey, if everyone pays taxes and I just, you know, don't, it'll maximize my utility. I get my money and, like, I get, I don't know, like, only, like, 1% of, like, IRS cases are actually, like, examined and, like, I don't know, some small percentage of those are actually, like, convicted and whatever. But so that seems like a pretty good cost-benefit analysis. But, yeah, sometimes it's rational defect because it'll maximize my utility. And honestly, that's in the line of rationality coming from straightforward maximizers. He might be right in that respect if he's from that school of thought. But the fool and straightforward maximizers are just plain mistaken with rationality. The cost of the fool is actually really high and cancels out any possible benefit of defection. Gauthier's response to the fool is that him being disposed to defect is irrational because he's mistaken about rationality. People don't want to deal with the fool because he has irrational dispositions that will probably lead him to defect again. People generally don't like to cooperate with people that they generally can't trust. Um, so yeah, that's all I I have for today's Amism podcast. I hope you all enjoyed and we'll be back next time for a new exploration. Until then, keep searching for the truth.